Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Today's guest in the writer's room is Selby Winschwartz, whose debut novel, After Sappho, is a fountain of fleeting fragments that together depict in lush, psychical detail the lives of a group of queer and feminist women in turn of the 20th century Europe. Many of the names will likely be familiar to you. Natalie Barney, Sarah Bernhard, Colette, Josephine Baker, Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Beach among them. Others, such as Lena Poletti, might be less familiar. But through Selby Winschwartz, assume their rightful and earned place at the heart of this narrative. Although crucially, after Sappho is no normal narrative. For Selby Winschwartz does not just tell the story of these women, or even retell it, but, inspired by the splintered remains of Sappho's poetry, with this book she reinvents the very form of the novel, turning it into something more diffuse, more choric and more radical. Selby Winschwartz, welcome to Shakespeare and Company. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really elated to be here. Oh, we're delighted to have you. Um, so I'd like to begin, it's going to be a bit of a strange beginning, referencing something in the, um, the acknowledgements of your book. Uh, but you say you had your deepest gratitude to Ellie and Sam, so your uh, publishers at Gallybegger Press. And then you used the sentence, who decided this was going to be a novel. And that just sort of got something churning in my mind about mm. how a novel like After Sappho comes into being. Because it is something which is so anchored to historical events and real people, and yet is very much a novel uh, in its own terms. So would you just be able to talk a little bit about uh, how this uh, idea for the book came to you, and in a sense, when you knew it was going to be a novel? Hmm. Well, I'm glad you started with acknowledgements because um, I would like to acknowledge Ali and Sam for being <laughs> so absolutely marvellous um, in this whole process um, as readers, as editors, um, as, as people who walked with me all, all along the way, um, in addition to a, a little circle of people around me who, who support me and, um, you know, but a tiny circle really. Mm. So um, in a sense, I didn't know this book could even be considered a novel mm. until um, I started proposing it to presses and I didn't know how to describe it at all. And very clumsily, I would just pile up sets of words like it's a kind of hybrid, speculative, collective, <laughs> feminist, turn of the century sort of sapphic biography. So that was like a paragraph uh-huh. of awkward and unwieldy description. Not really an elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, I think I was not very good at describing it. And um, when I did finally send it to, to Ellie and Sam, um, you know, quite quickly they got back to me and said, we think we'd like to publish your novel. Mm-hmm. And that was a revelation. Uh-huh. I didn't. They have such a, a an open-minded idea mm. um, of what a novel could be. Yeah. And so, 
I hadn't even considered that as a possibility. And then all, all of a sudden, thanks to them, I had one word, which uh-huh. is, is much better. Um, but in your, in your very kind opening description of it, I think, um, yeah, it's a, it's a novel that's, I mean, if it can be considered a novel, it's in fragments um, that Ellie and Sam called cascading vignettes, which again mm. is better than the terms I had for it, I think. <laughs> um, and it's, I thought of it as being interwoven. It's mm. a series of interwoven fragments that themselves have sort of as kernels, mm. these fragments of Sappho and these, these bits of lives, yeah. um, both in the sense, the historical sense, either the lives of real people and in the... Um, and in the literary sense, in the sense of like a biography is called a life. Yes. So the writing yeah, yeah. of a life was something that I thought about a lot. How do you write a life? What is the form these lives could mm. be written in? Um, and so maybe that drove some of the experiments in form. It was, uh, it was the question like, how can you make a shape for lives that uh, were very often, you know, bent in mm-hmm. order to fit um, the way a life was supposed to be shaped, the telos of a life where, you know, you were born, you, if you were a woman, you were born, you you got taught how to be like docile, pretty and mm-hmm. um, badly educated. You went yeah. on, you got married, you had kids and that was it. And that was not a great shape for many people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so in that sense also, it was about trying to, trying to write about the way they found forms, not only in literature, mm-hmm. but also in, in architecture and painting and, um, in every mode I could think of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I didn't actually count them up, but I'd say there were a good maybe two dozen protagonists of, of this book. Is that? Yeah, I've never counted either. Uh. <laughs> um, and so guesses that I've heard from other people have ranged from, as you said, two dozen to a hundred. Okay. I don't think there are a hundred, but I, I've never counted. Uh-huh. And... Um, and I do, you know, I did, it could have gone on forever. It could have mm. infinitely expanded as, yeah. a, as a web. And I, I did, especially in the case of how many girlfriends Natalie Barney had. Right. I just couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't fit them all in. Yes. So there were some, at some point it became impossible and there were some exclusions. So you just used the term, it infinitely expanded. And that was going to be the point I was coming to, is that I'm wondering what it infinitely expanded from. Like, was there one life that everything kind of built around? Or was it several sort of... Uh, sort of stars, I guess, rotating mm. around each other and that pulled in uh, other other planets, I guess, in the constellation no, of After I, Yeah, I like the idea of it being a constellation. I, I thought of it as, as threads, I mm. think. It was a kind of... Um, also because, you know, over time, some, some threads weave in and some weave mm. out. Yes. Um, and some threads are very closely intertwined and connected and, and overlapped, and some of the threads of the lives are only glancingly yeah. related are thematically related rather than, you know, they both sat in, they both came to Shakespeare and Company and sat together or something. Some are somewhere like that. Um, so um, the first mm, inkling or, or beginning of this, um, I guess there were three of them that came together. I was working on another project that was about, mm, it was mostly about uh, this Italian drag performer who mm. was a, was part of sort of early cinema as well, and um, in in doing research for that, I ran across um, Sarah Bernhardt and um, Eleonora Duza, right. and through Eleonora Duza, um, Lina Poletti, who I'd never heard of. I right. mean, I have a I have a PhD in comparative literature, and my my main language for that was Italian, but I had never heard of Lina Poletti, um, so she was quite a revelation uh-huh. to me, and. Um, yeah, those were the first three lives. I mean, Sarah Bernhardt, you know, 
she's walking her 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 crocodile on a jeweled leash you know <laughs> through Paris so that's it's hard not to want to write about yeah, that yeah. um and uh yeah with that kind of beginning then I began to to do more research and to ah. really teach myself I didn't know very much at all when I started so it was a I'm quite slow and it takes me a long time to teach myself enough to feel uh -huh. like I could even begin to write something. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. yeah, so I read, I read a lot and I, um, yeah, I just started expanding the, the, as you said, not infinitely, but I tried to expand the web outwards. Who is connected to who mm -hmm. else is, is, has a, has a way of seeing that relates to someone else's way of seeing um, and that's that's how it got built. So uh, a little chaotically, um, not in a not in a linear fashion. Yeah, it's it's it struck me as so interesting and so rare though to see that in a novel as well because I think all of our lives work in this way, right? As people come in and out of them and yeah. sort of influence each other, and we pull in these kind of uh, ideas and, and and innovations from the people around us, and and yet it's very rarely represented in a novel because a novel is generally I mean, this is a big generalization, but let's say the typical kind of realist novel, you get one story arc uh, covering, you know, a certain selection of beats and then and then you're out. And there was something that felt very sort of authentic about the way these mm. women's lives were depicted in that kind of overlapping, interweaving uh, mm. manner. Well, there, yeah, I mean, all of our lives are messy, I think, yes. in some ways. <laughs> so there's, there's that. Um, so I think also... Though it might come from the fact that they're the center, what you called, you know, this kind of one one story arc, mm -hmm. very traditional. You know, there's a protagonist um, who who uh, has a telos. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that kind of book, in part because of what I what I took out. So I I took out almost almost all of the men in mm -hmm. the history. Yeah. Um, Oscar Wilde is in there. He uh -huh. has a place, and there are some few. Um, but on the whole, I made a you know I I took out the let's say the people who are who are most often uh, at the center mm -hmm. of these uh histories and especially histories of literature mm -hmm. i think or artistic yeah. histories and then there was a space in the center and i guess instead of putting in like one central character who would be the i i put in a we as mm -hmm. you said a a choric yeah uh, sort of we and the the we the the chorus um has a different way of taking up space uh -huh. that isn't exactly like a protagonist mm -hmm. it isn't uh, also also the the we doesn't have the same kind of um one life one story arc one one telos right. so it might be partly about that cordula poletti born 1885 cordula poletti was born into a line of sisters who didn't understand her from the earliest days, she was drawn toward the outer reaches of the house, the attic, the balcony, the back window touched by the branches of a pine tree. At her christening, she kicked free of the blankets bundled around her and crawled down the nave. It was impossible to swaddle Cordula long enough to name her. Cordula Poletti, circa 1896. Whenever she could, she took a Latin primer from the Biblioteca Classense and went to sit in a tree near the cemetery. In her house, they called... Cordula, Cordula, and no one would answer. Finding Cordula's skirts discarded on the floor, her mother openly despaired of her prospects. What right-minded citizen of Ravenna would marry a girl who climbed up the tree in her underthings? Her mother called, Cordula, Cordula, but there was no one in the house who would answer that question. X, 
1883. Two years before the christening of Cordula, Guglielmo Cantarano published his study of X, a 23-year-old Italian. In excellent health, X went whistling through the streets and kept a string of girlfriends happy. Even Cantarano, who disapproved, had to admit that X was jovial and generous. X would throw a shoulder to a wheel without complaint, could make a room roar with laughter. It wasn't that. It was what X was not. X was not a willing housewife. X remained unmoved by squalling infants, would not wear skirts that swaddled the stride, had no desire to be pursued by the hot breath of young men, failed to enjoy domestic chores, and possessed none of the decorous modesty of maidenhood. Whatever X was, Cantarano wrote, it was to be avoided at all costs. Thus X was locked away in an asylum and Italian mothers were instructed to watch for signs of deviance in their daughters. Even those who had normal breasts, Cantarano cautioned, might turn out to be like X, whose apparently standard genitals had not prevented the attempt, late one night, to set the family home on fire. See Poletti, circa 1897. She shut the insistent voices of her family inside the house and went up her tree. From a haven of leaves, she looked out over the cemetery. The tombs of poets were wreathed in laurel and etched in glorious verses, while the graves of the ordinary listed as their only accomplishments the name of children produced or a spouse bereaved. So many dead in childbirth, she observed, and so few by shipwreck. Her mind was a tangle of lyric odes and unconjugated verbs. Each line of Ovid demanded an unspooling of which object bore the action and by whose brave hand. Each epithet traced to its source showed the divine moving behind the scenes of human life. In her tree was a great rustling of gods, owls, winged serpents. As soon as she finished the Latin primer, she went on to the Greek. She stayed up late, rapturously late. It became apparent that she wasn't Cordula at all. Lino Poletti, circa 1899. Towards the end of the century, she changed names. Cordula sounded anyway like a heap of rope. Lena was a swift, sleek line, a hand brushing a row of buttons. Lena was the one who would read Sappho. Lena lived with her family in Via Ratazzi, not far from the tomb of Dante. A tomb is a dead place in the ground. There is a rock on top of it, covered with tiny nicks that are words. Lena stayed up late, writing verses for the tomb. Not for Dante, himself, who had been dead since 1321, but for the incisions that words make on immutable substances. It would be many years before we learned of Lina Poletti. In her childhood, she dwelt alone, her only companions the solemn constellations of the night sky. The refrain rang through her house, Cordula, Cordula, but Lina listened only to the silence of stars. Eventually, she would learn to translate Sappho without a dictionary. She would find that she was one of us. But in those years, it was a great wonder that Lina, unlike X, did not set fire to the family home. Let's talk a little bit about Lena Poletti, because as you said, you'd never heard of her. I'm kind of relieved about that, because I just thought this was a <laughs> yeah. huge kind of hole in my, <laughs> in my sort of general, general culture. Um, so assuming a lot of our listeners haven't heard about her, would you be able to just give a little bit of a sort of, um, a sort of a, well, talk a little bit about how you discovered her, mm. and then how you realised her significance to this, uh, this group of women that you, you write about? Yeah, so I think the, the people who have heard about Lena Poletti, which... You're not, you're not alone, and I think I wasn't alone either. Usually have heard about her either because she, she spent some time in a romantic relationship with Sibila Ramo, who is much more famous um, for writing a book um, in 1906 called Una Donna, A Woman, um, which is 
I don't know what we would call it now. It's a kind of autofiction, maybe. It's um, a book about a woman mm -hmm. who is has a life very like Sibila Ramos' life in some ways, and she invented some other things. Um, and it's about a, you know, it's it's also sort of a novel um, and about a woman who, at the turn of the century, um, goes through a quite a quite terrible experience when she's very young of sexual assault and um, is in a complicated way married off to the the man who has assaulted her and she has a child and it's about her her very anguished process mm -hmm. of trying to figure out how to get out of the life that she's been trapped into and kind of been talked into yeah. as well um and uh about her decision to leave and how mm -hmm. how and why she does that and what it costs her mm -hmm. so um after after una donna was published um in 1906 there was a a national congress of Italian feminists mm -hmm. um, in 1908. And, um, and Sibilla Laramo, uh, who was sort of famous at that point, met Lina Poletti there. Mm -hmm. And they spent uh, some time afterwards being involved with each other. Um, and they wrote, a, they were both writers. Mm -hmm. um, so Lina Poletti is much younger. She was a playwright and later poet. Um, so they corresponded quite a bit um, in that time. And later on, Sibila Laramo also wrote a book which is very thinly disguised um, sort of uh, account mm -hmm. of, of her relationship with Lina Poletti. Um, and I think the other reason, if anybody knew about Lina Poletti, was, would be because of Eleonora Duza, who mm -hmm. was the relationship after right. Sibila Laramo. Anyway, so that, that already places Lina Poletti kind of at the side as a... As mm -hmm. a as a writer in her own right, as a uh, perhaps as a feminist in her own right, as a um, but she was um, she was so I learned about her in that very glancing way from from having read um, Sibila Ramo uh, and starting to read about Leonora Duza. But the person who really um, has done the most work, I think, on Lina Poletti is a a scholar named Alessandra Cenni who wrote a book called uh, Gli occhi eroici, which is a, a phrase that means the heroic eyes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as far as I know, she's been trying to get hold of the, the papers of Lina Poletti right. forever. And um, I hope she does eventually. I think she's <laughs> heroic herself in, in that effort. But um, while the papers of Sibila Laramo are accessible, um, there isn't very much left mm -hmm. from, from the life of Lina Poletti. And so as far as I know, most of what there is is, is in... Uh, is, I got through the work of Alessandra Cheney. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, Lina Poletti was uh, kind of ahead of her time in some ways. You yeah. know, she was, um, she was unashamed uh, of who mm -hmm. she was. And she, uh, she wanted a future and she wanted to write and she didn't want to settle down and get married. And, you know, she fell in love with mm -hmm. women um, and fell out of love with them and... and um, you know, she was ambitious. She mm -hmm. wanted to get her, her plays produced. Uh, like, you know, like many writers, she had difficulty finishing the manuscript, getting it published. Um, she, um, yeah, late, later in her life, she was, um, she was with someone. She had a, a, a very long-term companion she was with, and their life was a bit more stable, and she got very, very interested in archaeology mm -hmm. and traveled um, a bit and um, so had it sort of a you know life in various stages but she was she was someone who early on was at least in some ways public yeah. about who she was 
which was not who she was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her family and her, certainly in Italy at that time, um, and then in Italy under fascism, mm-hmm. which w- did not make it easier for people like Lina Polizzi yeah, yeah, in yeah. any way. There's a moment when you dis- uh, describe uh, the women at the time as, li- or lesbians particularly, I suppose, at the time, as living in a little hollow between laws, which, sound, which is a really sort of interesting situation. And, and it made me think that, that it's such a complicated... Uh, moment, I guess, for for women, because unlike, uh, for example, male homosexuality, which was legislated against and prosecuted against and uh, massively stigmatized, there was one sense in which uh, lesbianism was kind of unacknowledged legally, which gave a certain freedom. And yet at the same time, women, by virtue of being women, were sort of, in some way, uh, lesser beings in the law in most European, most countries around the world. And so it just, it, it struck me that must have been a very strange position for, um, for this group of women to, to navigate, to having sort of, in one sense, this kind of legal blindness to, to, the, to their sort of non-conventional lives, while also having this whole kind of framework constructed from preventing them from really realising their their, their freedom, I guess. Yeah, I think I think it's so connected to questions of privilege, you know, the women who, I mean, not all of the women, but most of the women I'm writing about um, had fairly extraordinary amounts of privilege. Often mm. they had they had money, um, they could travel, they, um, they were educated. Um, so, and just as they were getting these kinds of privileges, they also, I think it caused them to realize the kinds of privileges they didn't have, you know, they, they couldn't vote, they couldn't, um, you know, they couldn't, they weren't um, legally allowed to do, um, things like buy houses in their own names. And, uh, so it was that same kind of, um, double, um, position you're talking about where in a way having, you know, having money to go to Capri mm-hmm. and stay there uh, allowed allowed some of some of these women to have a certain amount of freedom and mm-hmm. to be open about um, who they were with and yeah. and um, you know how they how they desired. But on the other hand, um, yeah, being open is a certain is a certain risk, mm-hmm. and uh, so there was also a. A shrouding, I think, and I think you're also touching on something else, which is there's. A, I think this is not just at the turn of the century, but um, a real mm, a blurriness mm-hmm. around around how women relate to each other, and mm-hmm. partly, as you said, maybe it's because it's been less scrutinized, or partly it's. Um, you know, there are there are many complicated ways in which women uh, relate to each other. Lesbian is one of them, and not the, not the only one. Um, so it was that blurriness, as you said, both protected mm-hmm. some people um, in their relationships, in their loves, in their desires, um, and it also um, yeah made made things unclear. I mean, it, I guess to me it does have a kind of freedom because it it meant that people could. Um, not be tied to one thing, and mm-hmm. they could also change over time, which was important for many, many of the women who mm-hmm. became my characters, that they, they didn't have, often they did not only have one word for themselves, uh. or they were uh, maybe sometimes even deliberately blurry about that, or they did at one time have a word, uh. and then, you know, the, the word changed, or 
they might have been more than one word, mm-hmm. I guess I yes, could say yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, I mean, as you said before, among the, the many, many women in this book, they are not all of one kind. So uh. they, there's a kind of internal also, um, you know, people identified in different ways. And mm. we now would have different words for the way they identified. And if they lived now, they would probably have different yeah, words yeah, for that yeah. as well. And ha- having different words for, for, for how they lived or how they might describe themselves. But also one thing that's really striking is how many of these women changed their names yes. throughout the book. I find that sort of, it felt like such a kind of, um, I guess, kind of shucking off of some sort of mm-hmm. burden of the past. It's just these sort of, each time when it happens, because I think it must be, yeah, it's sort of almost all of them yes. <laughs> at different moments, like they'll shorten their name, they'll yes. change it completely. And it just, it's, it's a sense of kind of, you get as a reader of this is the moment that they, they almost, they come into being, that mm-hmm. they kind of, not that they're running away from an authentic self, but they're sort of discovering and defining it. Yeah, experimenting, I yes. think, as you said. And I, you know, for some of us, like we're given our names at birth, generally, mm. and they, they, that can feel like a gift. Like mm. you come into the world and someone gives you a name. It's often yeah. the first thing. And it's this recognition of you. Um, but it doesn't feel that way for everyone. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think it was very, from the very beginning of this book, I thought it should be about people changing their names mm. because... Um, they should have that right yeah. and the right to experiment with their names over time and um, and to say this this has never fit me or mm-hmm. this doesn't fit me anymore or I would like to be called this now or as a joke yeah. um, this is I'm going to be this for a while as a, as a kind of play um, and I guess in a in a maybe more serious way I also wanted to make room, and this is, goes back to your question about the we, I think, to make room in the we or to make room maybe for, for people to possibly see themselves, mm-hmm. shards of themselves, little refractions of themselves in one little glimpse of someone who for a while was this or made this name or mm-hmm. made this work. Um, and, and so I wanted there to be a lot of possibilities all, mm-hmm. all refracted. So in the... In the end, in the very end of the book, I hope this isn't giving something away. Um, there's, there's a sense that, or I'm, I, I think I'm trying to allow for the possibility that, you know, that someone else reading this book could could write, could write their life with their mm. own name. It doesn't have to be the names I gave people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, those were just my characters. And they were, you know, and they, in their lives, as historical people who are not my characters yeah, primarily, yeah. had their own ways of changing their names. But, but that, I don't know, I guess that's my hope, is that maybe someone reading it will think, okay, I, I see some part of this story that I could take for myself, and I will give it my kinds of names. Mm-hmm. It's not, in that sense, I think of it, yes, I mean, I wrote this, but I think of it as not, not mine anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On that subject of sort of his bringing historical uh, real people into into your work. How much, I was going to say as a novelist, but we established that you didn't necessarily <laughs> right. define yourself as a novelist at the beginning, but but as a novelist now, like how how much responsibility do you feel to the the hard facts, let's mm-hmm. say? And how much do you, and how much is there sort of this other, maybe let's say more artistic or poetic truth, which you kind of have to tack towards? Is it sort of, is, is, do you try and keep closer to one or, or the other? Yeah, this is such a good question. So 
I think I only have a, an intuited answer to it, which maybe is not very helpful. But to me, like I, I'm trained as a scholar. Um, you know, I have, I have a PhD and I write academically. So I love doing research. Mm -hmm. It's very joyous for me to just learn things, yeah. especially, I don't know, or even when those things are uh, not useful and not perhaps even widely cared about by mm -hmm. any number of people. Um, so the when I'm gathering facts, yeah, it is, it's like a gathering. It's like an amassing. And then the intuitive part is it's almost like finally after, after a very slow research mm -hmm. process, a cumulative sort of accreting of, of things that are historically true, it's almost like I, I feel like I lay them all down like a, like a carpet. And, uh -huh. then, and then I can kind of, like a very thick carpet that has its own texture, it has, a, it has a nap, mm. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> and that thick textured historical fact surface, it's like, then I can lie down and dream on it. Fascinating. Yeah. And that's not very helpful because it's just intuitive. It means, and sometimes it, you know, I, I go back and I really have to find one historical thing that's mm. true. Like I really wanted to know, um, I really wanted to know. So Villa Aleramo's father managed a glass factory mm. at the turn of the century in a small town in Italy. And I got really, uh, maybe I should say obsessed is probably true. I really wanted to know how, how did they, so there must be byproducts from mm. a glass factory at the turn yeah. of the century. What were they? Did they make some kind of toxic smoke? Mm. Did, were they carted off in trains? Like what happened? And I spent a long time. <laughs> I can't think, I probably think nobody else in the world except, except the person who wrote the book about Sibila Ramos years in this tiny town in her father's glass factory who answered the question. Um, I can't think many people care about this, but for some reason that, that there was, I needed to know that thing before I could build something fictional on yeah. it. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. So there's this kind of, uh, almost kind of pegs of a yeah, foundation in a way. that's a good way to say it. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I don't know what, there's not a, there's not a very rational idea of which, some things it's like, uh -huh. I don't know and I don't care to know. Some things are like, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And some things are like, no, this has to, I can't change this. This has to, I have to historically know this and it has to historically be true. So yeah. I think the few people who did, who did read this early on got really tired of me saying, oh, but this part is historically true. Right. Because they didn't <laughs> care. Only I cared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think the thing um, that's important to me, for example, as a reader, and I confess I'm, you know, the specific facts and dates are surrounding these, uh, this group of women. I, I, you know, I wouldn't have them particularly under my fingers, but there was, there was a sort of a, a readerly truth to it. Like they said, mm. something felt or sort of authentic and, and sort of uh, balanced, I suppose. Uh, about well, the, I'm glad to hear that. The image that's uh, presented. Let's talk a little bit about Sappho, because of course uh, she gave her name to um, to the book, and I, I, I'm always interested in titles and what they what they do to to the reader. And obviously, the the title can be read in at least two different yes. ways, right? Yeah. So it could be, you know, the uh, the sense of kind of what came after Sappho, or it could be in the style of Sappho. Yes. And in the, there's kind of two branches in kind of, uh, in the style of Sappho, we have both the women, particularly the writers that you're writing about, 
and uh, yourself <laughs> as well as a, as a sort of somebody composing something uh, in in fragments. Now, of course, you know, as we you know, Sappho didn't compose in fragments, but what is left behind of of her work is the fragments are are all we have. Um, was was Sappho sort of this foundational figure for this book right from from the beginning? Uh, did you know that this was going to that sort of it was uh, essentially through her influence on you and through her influence on many of the women that you write about that a lot of the threads that we talked about would, would be held together? Yes. The answer to this question is yes and Anne Carson. So I think I should just <laughs> admit that I'm a, a pretty hopeless Anne Carson fan. Uh-huh. Actually, hopelessly hopeless. Okay. Um, That's not a terrible thing to confess to. Thank you. You're, you're yeah. in very wide company. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I notice you have, you have, if not winter, on the table. So, um, yeah, so that book, I mean, I don't think my book would exist without mm-hmm. Anne Carson's If Not Winter. And more than that, also, you know, I, I owe to her um, a whole way of thinking about sentences and about fragments mm-hmm. and about... Um, yeah, she really changed my what I thought was possible for writing mm. when I, I first read short talks a few years ago, and then I went on and read everything, yeah. like absolutely everything. <laughs> um, and so um, the fact that she, both that she could, you know, translate Sappho so beautifully mm. and in such an, a, a strange and um, startling way mm. like to make this new again there have been m- many many translations of Sappho including the Sappho translation by Rene Vivienne mm-hmm. for example um, that and the and what she can do with a uh, also kind of an interweaving mm. of what she what she knows or works on as a scholar and what she imagines so you know I'm not a poet and I'm really not Anne Carson mm. so in a way this was like a failure a failure on my part to to manage to be even remotely like Anne Carson and um, but what I did what I did have from her you know were these these Sappho fragments and um, and I I do sort of read Anne Carson like other people do mm. drugs right so when I when I get stuck um, yeah I can really go back to um, to some of her work and um, and move something in my yeah. brain and unstick mm-hmm. um, so Sappho was was part of the project from from the beginning thanks to having read her work mm-hmm. but i also wanted to say you're absolutely right about about the title which also was there at the beginning but and i think of it i don't know if this matters but i think of it as corresponding to the two halves of the book mm-hmm. so in the first for me in the first half of the book they're in the after sappho you mentioned second they're in the style of they're mm. they're following they're yes. especially the chorus you know is like very in the beginning very young excitable wistful um naive um and they're readers uh-huh. they're really inveterate you were saying earlier on when we were talking that that all of the galley beggar books are maybe books about books yes and this is you know books about books about books but also books about you know, the, the we is really, um, the chorus for me, people who learn things by reading, mm-hmm. especially when they're young, they don't know how else to do it. They're looking at the diagrams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so reading Sappho and following people who for them are more like, more like stars, more like mm-hmm. figures, more like points they can gather around, Natalie Barney in particular. Um, but uh, that's the kind of 
following in the footsteps of Sappho, trying yeah. to reanimate the fragments, trying mm. to, you know, return. It's backwards looking and, yeah. and nostalgic. And there are some dangers with that. Mm. Um, you know, it can be fossilizing. It can be sometimes colonializing. Mm. It can be, um, it can just come to a stop. You know, mm. there's a, there's a, an, a limit, I think, to what you can do by following only in the steps of, although there's a very understandable desire to look backwards, yes. yeah. especially for people who feel like there haven't been figures like them elevated mm. in the past. Um, you look for the very few that there are and you idolize them. Yes. Uh, I think that's quite natural. So anyway, for me, in the center of the book, it turns, you know, there is a kind of interruption of that possibility. And after that, is the other kind of after Sappho, which is like, all right, we can't go back. Yes. It's not, we can't just go back to Lesbos and, um, you know, um, yeah, stay up all night reading poetry. We actually have to invent some form mm. in which to write our own lives, and we don't know how to do that. And we, we the chorus, I think, go around looking for, for models, for hope, mm. for possible forms that might fit can it what, what does a portrait look like what would a room of one's own even be how do you furnish the room how do you pay for the house how do you what do you wear in those rooms what do you think about when you're thinking mm -hmm. alone how do you write a chapter that really reflects the multiplicity of kinds of thoughts that are all happening together at one time the arc of your life isn't teleological then what is it yeah. so that's the other kind of after it's more uh. of a yeah, it's more of a, an experiment in form. And in a way, I guess they're connected almost by the fact that what we have of Sappho is fragments. And that's something I felt sort of, you could feel almost, in one sense, it's something to perhaps be regretted that this was this huge body of work of which so little remains. And yet there seemed to be something inspirational about the fragments. So this, it gave not only these writers and artists sort of space to to breathe and invent and to create kind of in between but it also showed them i guess that it comes back to this this kind of uh traditional narrative that we talked about that that was maybe something that was handed down and preserved and kept and maybe in a lot of ways quite closely except uh attached to the the patriarchy in a way and in having just fragments of Sappho and yet still be, being able to weave something out of them and still being able to um, sort of project between the fragments, it seemed to sort of, in a sense, fuel this, this quest for new forms amongst, uh, amongst your writers. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's exactly right. You know, there's something, uh, there's something glamorously mysterious about the mm. fragment. You only have this little bit. It's easy to... It's easy to fetishize. It's also, yeah. you know, it's. I think it can give you the sense that it's been broken open for you to fill it, mm -hmm. or it's been broken open for you to wrap yourself around it. Yeah. Um, and that's as you as you rightly pointed out. You know, it's not like Sappho only wrote in fragments and yeah. wanted <laughs> you know wanted uh, nine, most of her nine books of poetry to be lost. I mean, we don't know, mm -hmm. but I would assume no. Yeah. Um, uh, but but yeah, I think because of the romantic mm. incompleteness of the fragment they're very attractive yes. maybe especially to writers uh. you have this this mystical but still open bit left to you um and um so there certainly was 
think, in the in the writers who um, who were drawn to Sappho, you know, around the turn of the century, particularly in Paris. Um, there was both the sense that here was a, an ancestress, uh-huh. you know, um, and also here was someone who left things that were still that appeared to them potentially unfinished. Uh-huh. And that could be not only translated, which they were some of them were very devoted to doing, but also could be could be taken up in new mm. ways, could be re-embedded almost. Yeah, 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 yeah. I find that really interesting that idea as well that they're particular fragments, particularly in, sort of interesting and attractive to writers. Because uh, for my part, when I see, for example, Sappho's poetry, that so much can be done in so little. <laughs> it's it's a, I think a very important right uh, lesson for writers actually that sort of like you know. It's a sentence here, half a sentence there, and yet so much is conveyed by by these fragments, and we should sort of, yeah, sort of reflect, I guess, about reining in our own, <laughs> well, I don't know about that. our own verbosity. But um, but just sticking with this idea of uh, sort of language and grammar, like that, that also seems to be something which is really important to the to the book of the kind of, in a sense, if you can learn a different language. Uh, and that might be ancient Greek or that might be the language of a particular community, then certain sort of freedoms open up or different ways of thinking. So, so there's one part where you're, you're, you're writing about the, um, the sort of the different ways that in, in ancient Greek things could be expressed and this idea of, of the, there's a case, you could talk about one thing or two things, but you can also, there's also a concept for two things that fit together. Is that a... Is that a fair way of representing it? Yes, well, I'll have to answer this as not a scholar of ancient okay. Greek, so let me just say that in advance. But um, insofar as I understand it from reading people who are actual scholars of ancient Greek, um, yes, I thought, I thought this is quite fascinating, and I hope I'm getting it right. Um, so, you know, we have um, in, in many languages a singular and a, and a plural um, for nouns. And then I think, if I understand this properly, um, in Greek there's also a dual, mm-hmm. which is for two things that are that fit very closely together, like two, like two halves of a walnut shell mm. or two twins or, um, yeah, two things that can, can be sort of nestled in the same sphere that, uh. are, that, are, uh, that are facing each other or around each other or something like that. That's how I've understood it anyway. Yeah. And I just thought that was, um, especially at a time, you know, where in English we're um, happily like reinventing some of our pronouns to accommodate yeah. more people, um, the fact that, this was a, it's just a different way of thinking about what is a singular and what is a plural uh, um, that I had not encountered before reading about it. So I really liked that idea. And I could imagine like, it's true. Why don't we have a category? Yeah. Like, what do we call those things where it's a walnut? So it's got two, it's two parts of a walnut mm. in one walnut shell yeah. in a sort of Hamlet way. But, um, but it's also one, one thing. And it just seemed like a good, a good exercise, I guess, in changing, in being able to change our language around uh things we, we come to observe as, yeah. as possibly true. And also, I think, very illustrative of how, if you inhabit another language, it can change the way that you, you apprehend the world. Yes, so true. Yeah, and it's, um, yeah, you know, in this, I, the languages that I, that I do speak are, are Italian and, and French. And so um, I learned a lot of words, though, in those languages that I didn't know because I don't know that much about, you know, what people said in French mm-hmm. in 1902, for example. Yeah. So I learned some things about that. Um, and it did, it did change how I, yeah, how I think about things. I really, as I said, you know, I was trained as a scholar and I used to be a medievalist. So I absolutely love things like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, I'd like to come back to something you talked about um, earlier when we were we were talking about the sort of the uh, the legal structure um, at the turn of the century, and you mentioned how things changed under under fascism. And one thing that becomes very clear, and one of the most kind of I guess fraught moments of the book, is how so much of what these women are building yeah. is under threat by historical events, and particularly, I suppose, by men. Uh, who willfully fail to to understand or take against? So there's this um, this British guy. What was his name? Uh, Noel Pemberton Billing. Okay, yeah, that was a bit um, fun to write. I mean, one of one of the one of the the few men in the book, and it was sort of quite a kind yeah. of clownish. He is. Figure. Yeah, I mean, he was easy to make. Uh, yeah, I'm not the only person who who writes about him as a as a complete buffoon. Ah, which... and yeah, a complete buffoon, but as I guess. <laughs> the histories of both recent histories of both the United States and Britain yeah, have shown us complete buffoons who are also can be very dangerous. Pernicious, right? yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I mean, he, yes, there there's scholarship on the on the trial of of Maud Allen, um, you know, sort of for yeah obscenity, and then she she countersued, I think. So yeah, so he, Noel Noel Pemberton Noel Billings, I think was his name, and he uh, yeah, he's just as you said, we still have these, unfortunately, you know figures of this, this heteropatriarchy who can find nothing better to do than, than torment people for their perceived difference from some normative standard that they've obsessed themselves with. Um, but he, he was, at least in the retellings, mm-hmm. um, kind of a caricature of uh-huh. that figure. And he, uh, he got quite upset about this dancer named Maud Allen, who was performing the role of Salome. Um, and... Um, raised the question publicly, you know, of whether what she was doing was obscene and associated just this entire incomprehensible cloud of words around her, like clitoris and um, lesbia and um, uh, Oscar Wilde. Uh And it was just a kind of rag bag of various scandal mongering. Um, But there was, when I was reading the scholarship around this, uh, there was the story that there was a certain lord who walked into his club while this was happening and said to his fellows at the club, I've never heard of this Greek chap clitoris they're all talking about. Um, <laughs> so how could you read a line like that in the scholarship and not want to yeah. write about it? Yeah. So he's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a figure. I guess in that sense, there are, there are men in the book. But I think of it, they're not so much men in that they're not really characters. They're just, they're just figures of the cis-heteropatriarchy, yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. And he's one of those, probably one of the more prominent mm. ones, because he was so easy to skewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But on a sort of, I guess, a more serious point, it's like this sort of the fragility of yeah. the acquisition of certain rights, for example. Uh, and, and certainly we get the impression that the First World War sort of did a lot to undo a lot of the progress that yeah. um, that had, that had taken place and likewise the uh, you know the sort of the, the arrival of fascism in in Italy yes um, did a similar thing but I think you know we're recording this in July 2022 and obviously you know a few weeks after the overturning of Roe versus Wade and yeah. various uh, other recently acquired rights being being called into question it takes on a particularly uh, poignant and uh, sort of uh, urgent edge, I think. Yeah, I mean, I really, I would really trade every single nice thing that someone has said about this book for someone to say, your book is so totally irrelevant for our time. Right. It's so quaint, it has nothing to do with anything we're working on now. I would, I would, yeah, I would really give that, give this up. Yeah, but counterfactually, that's not, that's not possible. So I, 
um, yeah, it's really I was you know I was already enraged that we that we had had debates about whether people like me were actually fully people a hundred years ago, right? And not just people like me. I mean, I think my feeling, and I could be wrong, but my guess is that anyone who you know who is born and grows up thinking of themselves in themselves as a as a whole complete person as as compute confused and complex as anyone else but also just as capable and then to realize at some point that people like you were not allowed to vote or were not considered full human beings or you know counted for three-fifths of something or were told you were um perverted or or you know a, an abomination of some kind and you think ah uh, well i mean i don't I feel like a full person who yeah. could probably make decisions for myself just like everybody else. And that um, cognitive dissonance is, um, yes, I was already upset about this happening yeah. 100 years ago. And I am, I am enraged um, about it now. And I hope, I hope that, I know that millions of people are enraged with yeah, me of all yeah. across, across ways of identifying, you yeah, know. You yeah, can't, yeah. we can't have a can't have a world in which people's autonomy and right to self-determine mm. and and right to be who they are is constantly under threat yeah, in this way yeah, whether yeah. that's about women or about trans people or about people of color it's just um yeah i hope you know i think so many of us are enraged i hope we're also motivated to yeah. to act together because of course the the book uh, you know publishing is a very sort of slow beast so obviously the book's coming out now but uh, i guess the the editorial and then the composition when you were writing it, uh, I, was there sort of already the sense that this kind of assault on on rights could be coming? I mean, was in some way could be parallel to what uh, mm. took place in in Italy in the in the sort of twenties and thirties was coming, or did you did you feel you were writing it from a slightly different space to how you maybe when you look back at the book from this point in time uh, and how you yeah. feel about those particular particular moments? Well, I'm not. I'm not a Cassandra, so I perhaps naively didn't didn't think that I would lose reproductive rights in mm. my lifetime in my country, but that turns out to be to be not true. Although, you know, it should be said there are many activists who did foresee this and yes. who who have created networks and and resources exactly for this time, and I am grateful to them for for knowing and foreseeing. And I did not, but I did. I mean, you know, I did go through. Um, the Trump years, mm -hmm. and that changed um, that changed how women were viewed in in the U.S. Right. And not only, you know, those were also the years of Me Too and of the Women's March, and you know, of the of the rising up around Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. So it's it's certainly a time of both of um, seeing what the heavy hand of white supremacist cis-heteropatriarchy can come down on. Yeah. And also, you know, a time of, of inspiration and hope. Like there are, there are people who are rising up and, and I think very inspiring movements that we can follow. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, you know, you made me think about when I finished this. So when I, when I was done with it, um, it was in the summer of the of the spring when the pandemic was beginning and I was in um, I was in Marseille actually and so in the French uh, newspapers maybe mm. you remember this there was a lot of a lot of talk about le monde après yes and the, this idea this really utopian idea that there was going to be a world afterwards when it wasn't going to 
be like it had been. Yes. We weren't going to we were going to stop exploiting already exploited workers and start recognizing, you know, that care was one of the most important things we do. And um, so I was also affected by that yes. discussion, like what will be the monde après? You know, what will be the world after this coming to a crashing halt yeah. in, uh, you know, in an unchosen way and with devastating um, effects, but that, that stopped that, that kind of mechanized, constant going on, getting busy, mm-hmm. doing things, running around, you know, not thinking about. Um, so it, it, I guess it was also touched by that time yeah. that I think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd like to, to finish just by, yeah, I mean, when we were talking about the no Pemberton billing, um, you said it was a fun section to write. But one thing that struck me about this book was, well, firstly, I mean, how much fun it was to read, how much uh-huh. fun it was to, to be with these That's women. Great and also in a sort of, um, you know, I say this as a man, but in a kind of a world sort of reconfigured, not without men, but with a kind of men sort of, Sideline, I guess, yeah, in a way, that's the way I um, that, that women had, had historically been. Um, and so I was curious to know, for you, like, which were some of the most fun sections mm. to research and write? I mean, of course, Natalie Barney stands out as kind of, you know, the, the most sort of flamboyant, uh, extravagant uh, <laughs> figure maybe yes. on the Paris scene. Right, and she did write about that. Yeah, but I'm just curious, yeah, for you, were there any particular either characters or scenes or moments that mm. were particularly sort of fun? Yeah, what a great question. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think writing about Sarah Bernhardt is always fun mm-hmm. because she did also write her own life. And just... She just, um, she was maybe as close as you can come to just not being a mortal being. Right. (laughs) She just didn't, she didn't care, you know, and she, I think she kind of loved the, the fact that people were scandalized, Mm -hmm. you know, someone would start spreading a rumor about how she slept in a coffin and instead of (laughs) trying to say like, no, I don't sleep in a coffin. I was, I can explain everything. She was like, "Hmm, maybe I, maybe I will sleep in a coffin. Um, and her, so her self-presentation that way, just, I mean. There's nothing that I read about Sarah Bernhardt that wasn't like, yeah, maybe I do sleep in a coffin. <laughs> um, so she was really fun. And um, I mean, yeah, Natalie Barney was fun, but maybe because it was new to me, I read the memoirs of um, the person who was employed as Natalie Barney's maid, mm-hmm. um, whose name is Berthe Clairogue. And she, she wrote her own memoir, so yeah. I think important to consider her, which I don't think have been translated from French, and I would love okay. someone to translate them. Um, anyway, they're fascinating. She's a, you know, she gets overlooked because she wasn't Natalie Barney, but she, um, yeah, just her, her, her memories of her life and, um, how she saw things mm-hmm. was, you know, she was a, she was a working class person and yeah. she had a different view on what, um, on what Natalie Barney's house was like, on what the war was like. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I think that was that was like a turning around for me mm-hmm. of, of what um, I was mostly reading. And the, the last thing I have to say, this is just maybe emotional, is so I've read a lot of Virginia Woolf, yeah. like really from a young age and kind of a, an addict, but I had never read her early journals, mm-hmm. which are collected in this book called A Passionate Apprentice. Um, and so she's, it's the earliest writing that she did that we have. Yeah. And... I mean, you can see, that's like, you can see a Virginia Woolf becoming. 
because uh-huh. also she's you know she's really young she's self-conscious she's trying things out yeah um but it's like but you can also see that she's going to become uh-huh. the person that we know yeah, as the writer yeah, yeah, virginia yeah. wolf and that that was really um yeah i'm so glad that i got to uh, that i you know i was doing that as part of the research yeah oh that seems such a wonderful place yeah. on which to to leave things uh, after sappho is of course available from shakespeare and company from our online store as well as our bricks and mortar store or of course from your local independent bookstore wherever uh, wherever you might be uh, based all that remains for me to say is selby thank you so much for joining us today oh thank you for having me thank you for listening to the shakespeare and company podcast if you've enjoyed this conversation it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favorite app or just by sending the link to some of your friends And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.